So hello, dear friends. Today is Monday, August 27th, 2018. And we are here at the Open Way Mindfulness Center as part of our Be Here Now evening. Thank you so much for being here now with us. <clears throat> Pun intended, yes. Um, <laughs> My name is Nicole Dunn, and um, the title I've given my talk tonight is called Re-Envisioning Our Practice. And I'd like to start off my talk by showing you a picture of my cat. <clears throat> yeah, you get, did you guys see that coming? <laughs> so before I show you the picture of my cat, I'll tell you that um, when I printed off this picture, I showed it to my cat, and I was like, hey, buddy. This is, this is the plan. I'm going to show this at the start of my talk. And he turned to me and said, it's about time. <laughs> yeah, so he really thought it was. <laughs> it was about time that I started to talk off with a picture of him. <clears throat> so I'm hoping you can all see this, but I'll explain it too. Um, so this is a picture of my cat, Gonkubi. This is the name, and I took it a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to try to hold it up here. Um, and as you might be able to see, he has found a creative way to um, repurpose the use of one of our lounge chairs outside. And so instead of sitting in the traditional way you would sit in a lounge chair, he's found a way to finagle himself on the back top of the chair and sort of wedge himself in um, on the top of the cushion between the cushion and the wood slats. When you look at him from afar, it looks like he's just kind of floating on the cushion like in a magical state. <laughs> Um, and so, much in a similar fashion to how my cat has seen fit to repurpose the use of this chair, reinvent the use of it, um, it would behoove us as well to find ways to re-envision our practice, to find new ways, creative ways to approach our practice and envelop it into our daily life. Did that analogy work? Did that? Did you guys follow that? <laughs> Why? Okay, it's coming around. I feel it. She's she's going somewhere with it. That's where it was. <laughs> so um, all of us, from time to time, will likely find that we become stale, stagnant, uninspired in our practice. We kind of lose momentum. We lose inspiration. And what can happen from that state is we might want to take a break from our practice. We might say, well, maybe I'll stop coming to Sangha on Monday night or Tuesday night. I'll stop going to retreats, or maybe I'll stop doing my sitting meditation practice at home. I'll stop using these tools I've been using because I'm just, I'm just not feeling it. I'm just, I've grown bored with my practice. Well, I think it can be a really good idea to take a break from certain things in our daily routine or weekly routine. For instance, I just took a break from like scheduled business meetings for July and August and it was glorious. It is not advisable to take a break from our practice. Because what often happens when we do that, when we take a break from our practice, we stop coming to Sangha, we stop doing our sitting, we stop going on retreats, we stop doing these things that we've been doing um, to help our practice. 
Um, oftentimes, that break becomes a divide that grows larger and larger, and we have trouble reconciling that divide over time and coming back around to it. So instead of taking a break from our practice, um, we can find ways to reinvigorate it, to rehydrate it, to find creative ways to um, bring freshness back to it, the life back to it, our vibrancy back to our practice. Mm. Two of the um, sort of prominent obstacles that I see in regards to this process of keeping our feet moving um, on the path of practice um, are lack of diligence yeah. and adherence to faulty views. So these are two of the large components that I see as obstacles that often get in the way for, for many of us, if not all of us, at some point. And so I'm going to speak briefly to these, these two parts. Lack of diligence. So this can show up in a few different ways. The ways I've commonly seen it is that people will come to the practice, maybe start coming to Sangha, maybe read a book and get really enthusiastic about the practice. And then once that enthusiasm wears off, which it will, um, oftentimes we then feel like, oh, it's not working anymore, and we stop doing it. Right? Um, so that's kind of one common way of seeing it come up for people. Um, another way is to start coming to Sangha um, looking for something. You know, Maybe we're struggling a little bit, and we start coming back to Sangha, or we start coming to Sangha in the first place. Um, and then we start sort of getting a glimmer of, we start getting a glimmer of the practice, we start feeling a little bit better, and then when we start feeling better, we stop coming to Sangha. We, we stop utilizing the community. Um, and so that's another common way that the, that can come up. There's other ways too, and we all deal with this element of lack of diligence at one point or another, or, or ongoingly. Um, it's very common, it's something we all share. Mm. At the root, one of the biggest roots, I think, um, at, uh, for lack of diligence is that we have a lack of confidence in our own capacity to generate the qualities of the practice. We lack confidence in our own capacity, and that shows up as lack of diligence. We stop, we stop our practice because um, we don't think we can do it. We don't think we can realize these qualities of ease, of joy, of happiness, of this inner contentment. We don't think we can do it. We lack confidence in our own capacity. And the remedy to this, one of the biggest remedies, maybe the only remedy, I'm not sure, but a big remedy to this is befriending our self. So if we can find ways to re-envision our practice in the sense of befriending, yeah, if we look at our practice as one of befriending, um, we will find that that will help uh, instill confidence over time, and it will help sort of remedy um, perhaps a lack of diligence that we might have in, in staying with the practice of continuing to show up the Sangha, of attending retreats, of, um, uh, of doing sitting meditation practice at home, some of these foundational elements of the practice. Mm. Befriending ourselves. 
and not just befriending the parts that we are already comfortable with and that we like and find pleasing and things that we tell people about, but the things that we don't tell people about, the, the things that we hide from ourselves and from other people, befriending all of it, past traumas, current traumas, addiction, mental illness, current hardships, befriending all of that, all of it. It's very important. Um, there's a quote that I really like. Um, it's one of my favorites um, from the teacher, Jack Cornfield, and I'm pretty sure I've shared this before in a talk, and I'll continue sharing this quote in talks, I think, into the future. And it's, um, much of spiritual life is self-acceptance. Maybe all of it. Much of spiritual life is self-acceptance. Maybe all of it. And I, for myself, I've experienced this to be true. Um, the more I am able to befriend my whole entire experience, everything that happens, everything that I feel, everything that comes up, um, the more com comfort I find in my own skin. Yeah. And our inner environment is reflected in how we view and engage with the world. Right? So if it's a battlefield inside, it's going to be a battlefield outside around you. There's no separation. So befriending ourselves is incredibly a rich, potent, powerful practice. And it's not something we just pick up once and then put down, right? It's something that we continue to do. It's a, it's a deep well, and it's, it's never ending. Um, befriending ourselves. Hmm. There's part of me that thinks, like, if we only had, if we only chose one thing to do, to put our time and energy into, befriending ourselves, that much like what Jack Kornfield was saying, that could be it. That could be all of it. Um, because everything, eventually, if you stuck with that, it would include everything else. Do we have a bell? So the other uh, prominent obstacle that, um, that I feel is part of this equation of uh, being able to re-envision our practice, to keep our feet on the path of practice, is adherence to faulty views. Yeah. And we have a wealth of them, <laughs> a wealth of faulty views that stand in our way, but I'm going to just touch on a couple. Um, and one of those is that we... I think we would benefit um, by investigating for ourselves how we identify with being an individual self and how we identify with being a collective self, so part of the human collective. Because the chances are very high that we have these notions backwards. We have them sort of in reverse order if that makes sense, and I'll, I'll attempt to uh, explain this a little bit more. Um, so we have the mistaken tendency to uh, put the quality of our well-being into the hands of others. 
when really it's our responsibility to cultivate and strengthen an inner sense of contentment and ease and joy. Yeah, happiness is an inside job, but we tend to put that onto others. Yeah, and then at the same time, we mistakenly try to go it alone and do it ourselves when it comes to the ongoing nourishment and support that we all need in order to thrive. So we try to do it ourselves in moments when we should be relying on others and leaning on others. And we are trying to lean and rely on others in moments when we should be making better acquaintance with our own person. Yeah, so these are a little bit backwards. And that's a collective, I think that's a collective happening, yeah, um, that we're trained in that regard, yeah, in many different ways. Mm. So it's worth investigating how, is this true for us? How, how, do I, how do I identify with being a self that's unique? And how do I identify with being part of the human collective? Because they're both happening at the same time. Western minds, we have especially, I think, have a hard time carrying two different things that seem like a dichotomy or opposing, right? We're like, wait, it, can, it can't be both. It has to be one or the other, but it's not. Yeah, we're an individual self and we're not separate from the human collective. Both are true. Yeah. Um, and so we are um, responsible for our own well-being and we need other people. Yeah, we're not separate from other people. So it's important for us to find good quality people to spend time with, to develop relationships with people who are supportive and nourishing, who are encouraging and inspire us to move in the direction that we want to be going, who are traveling in the same direction, um, and to not think that we need to do it ourselves. So both are happening at the same time. And it feels there's like this tension, there's a friction that we feel because it's it kind of it racks our brain, like, wait, what's happening? Yeah. So we can try to sit with that in our heart, that both of those things are, that are happening. Mm. And another aspect of this sort of faulty view obstacle um, is um, it's also worth our time and energy in figuring out for us what we think the practice is and what the essence and aim of our own practice is. I'm sort of a, identifying sort of a spiritual mission statement, if you will. Because if we're not sure what the essence and aim of our practice is, then it's going to be hard to know if we're traveling in that direction. Sometimes we might feel lost, but we don't know if we're going in that direction because we don't know exactly what the essence is of our own practice. And if we start really looking at, okay, what is the practice, we might find that we have some ideas that are not realistic and maybe actually really detrimental to our practice as well. So like, for instance, if we think mindfulness is a blissful state that we can get to where nothing ever bad happens, you know, that's not a good, that's not a good view. That's, a, that's not a helpful view, right? That is unrealistic. That's impossible. That's never going to happen. So if that's your idea of practice, that's going to be a hard road to toe, right? And of course, you're not going to want to stick, stick with the practice and be diligent because that's, that's, that's impossible, right? So it's worthwhile looking into, okay, what, what, do I, what is the practice? What am I doing? <laughs> yeah? Uh, uh, what is the essence and aim of my practice? 
Like for me, for instance, um, my one of my highest intentions with my practice is to be of benefit and support to other people. That's that's a high motivation for me. And I also have a desire to offer my presence and my skillfulness and heartfulness to those I hold dear. And in order to do that, <laughs> yeah, if that's my intention, um, then I um, have what I have now created as what I consider my foundational and rotational practices that I do in order to help me move in that direction to actualize what the essence and aim of my practice is. Yeah. Um, so for me, the qualities of solidity and fluidity are what I aspire to in my practice. Those two elements, solidity and fluidity. And for me, I use um, as um, some of my biggest mentors are trees in this regard. Yeah, because the tree, the trunk of the tree is very solid. It's very grounded, rooted, um, and stable, yeah, upright. And yet the branches of a tree, they move and they sway and they react with the weather. They change with the seasons. They drop, they fall, they grow new branches. Yeah, so for me, uh, trees are a great teacher in this regard. And I like to spend time learning from those mentors. Um, so in regards to having these qualities of uh, cultivating and strengthening qualities of solidity and fluidity, I have foundational and rotational practices that I do. And what I mean by that is I have foundational elements that I do in my, for my practice that are not negotiable. There are things that I do that I know if I stopped doing them, my practice would fall off, it would falter, it would suffer greatly. Yeah. So the foundational elements for me are daily sitting meditation, coming to sangha every week, attending retreats. I also have um, a gratitude practice that I have fashioned together myself um, that I do after my sitting meditation practice every morning. These things I've realized, and over the years, uh, um, have realized that these are not negotiable for me. If I want to actualize my sort of mission statement, yeah, if I want to do what the essence and aim of my practice is, these things are not negotiable for me. That's for myself, my own practice. Um, if I stop sitting every day, if I stop coming to Sangha, my, my practice would suffer greatly. Yeah, I would not be able to generate the qualities that I am aspiring to to uh, strengthen in my life. Qualities such as ease, groundedness, um, connection, um, understanding, all of these greatly depend on the foundational practices that I do for myself, just speaking from my own experience. Mm. And then as a way to help us um, keep our practice fresh and alive, I think it's important to create and have different ways that we um, generate mindfulness that are rotating, different things that we pick up and put down or maybe do for a certain amount of time or, you know, try out new things to keep our practice vibrant. I think that's important. And so I'm going to share with you um, a couple of the ones that I've been doing this year and a couple of past ones that I've done to just hopefully start to 
maybe uh, you know, give you some ideas and generate some uh, energy around thinking creatively when it comes to new ways to practice. Because there's a lot of ways to generate mindfulness mm -hmm. in our everyday life. Hmm. And it's also important, like I said, to find what foundational elements for you are important to maintain. So to have those both things going on. So every January, for the last number of years, instead of making like a New Year's resolution, which I've never resonated with, I come up with um, typically two, either one or two, but typically two new ways that I can enfold mindfulness into my sort of daily, weekly routine. And so the, I have two new ones that I started this year that I'm continuing that'll go through this year and then I'll come up with two new ones and these will probably fall away. Um, and so one of them, one of them that I do, um, I uh, got from a part of a reading from Benjamin Franklin, his autobiography. And I took a cue from Benjamin Franklin. Um, and what he did, what I read is he, um, at a very young age, I think he was like 19 or 20, he developed a set of 13 virtues. Um, that he felt he wanted to work on. And he created a little synopsis for each one of these virtues. Yeah, and he made a chart. And so for one week, he would focus on one virtue. And he would have this chart, and he would give himself a tick mark uh, when, he didn't, when he felt he didn't follow through with his particular virtue in the way that he wanted to. Um, and he would do one virtue a week. He would move through 13 weeks, and then he would start over. So... And he would just keep repeating. And he did this for years. And he stuck with these 13 virtues, every week a different virtue. Um, and I was like, hmm, that's an interesting idea. So as some of you who have frequented here a while know, one of my common practices that I do is something that I can do while driving. Because driving is a, is a part that I am ongoingly working with because I get impatient and frustrated on the road. Um, I still feel, I don't know how this is possible, but I, I'm from outside of Philadelphia, and I still feel like an East Coast driver, even though I've been out here for 20 years. I feel like the, the East Coast driver is just very much alive in me, and it's, it's taking some time. <laughs> I've come a long way, and there's more to go. And so every year I try to, one of the practices I come up, up with is something I can do while I'm driving, and a different one. So this, this year I started, this is from my car, I keep it in my car, called the angst and impatience chart. And I have it listed out in different months, and I give myself a tick mark. When um, out loud I say, oh my god, why isn't that guy using his turn signal? Which happens a lot. That's a lot of these tick marks, is my <laughs> impatience with Missoulians not using turn signals. It's one of my things. I'm working on it. <laughs> um, I talk out loud to myself a lot. So if I know, you know, every time I say something out loud, you know, that's a frustration or impatience while I'm driving. I give myself a tick mark. And it started um, pretty early on that um, I started noticing other subtleties arising. So maybe I would stop saying it, but I would roll my eyes. Or I would go like this while I was driving, right? And that counts. <laughs> so I started realizing the other subtleties, the body language, the facial expressions I would make, if, even if I wasn't saying something out loud. Um, and that counts. <laughs> um, 
What's really important to keep in mind with this is that there's a really easy way to use this to a detriment. So if you are someone who is maybe inspired to start something similar to this, but this is just going to be another excuse for you to give yourself a hard time, then this is not a practice you should do. Seriously, yeah. There's a detrimental way to use this where it would be very damaging. Yeah, so we need to be able to utilize this in the correct spirit in order for it to be helpful. So for me, I'm very lighthearted about it. And I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, like I laugh at myself all the time. I mean, I'm just like, find myself wildly entertaining. And so um, it's important to go into that with that kind of spirit, like an investigative, you know, <laughs> approach and not one that you're going to be like, oh, God, I did it again. I'm so terrible. Like that's, we do that enough already, right? We don't need something else to practice at. Um, so please keep that in mind. Um, so this is one of my new practices. I also find it really funny that one day in July, I have nine tick marks, like on one day. And I'm like, wow, that, that was my highest day. You know, I was on the road the longest. <laughs> and I found it so funny every time I gave myself a new tick. It was hilarious. Um, <laughs> so um, this has been really helpful for me because it's really it, it, um, allowed me to tune into observations on a different level. And um, so for me, this has been a helpful tool. The other one that I've been doing, and this works for me because I'm a writer and I love words, is I've been um, doing a, a word of the day practice. And I don't find one every day, but I've been paying special attention to words that I come across that I don't know what they mean. And rather than just kind of reading or hearing them and just kind of you know, figuring out what they mean, sort of, I'm actually stopping, writing them down, looking them up, keeping track of them. Um, and this, for me, has been just a really creative way to tune into things in a little different way. Um, so it's, it's my other practice that I have been doing. Um, and um, once in a while, I have um, a friend that I send these to, which I'm going to put him on the spot. It's Marco. So Marco helps me keep this going because he enjoys words, too. So like finding a friend that you can do certain practices with can be helpful. Um, for me, that's been a, um, a really... Uh, good help over the years, finding different friends to do different practices with to keep me energized. Um, so those are my two new practices for, for this year. Um, one that I've done in the past, which is one of my favorites, is, is bumper sticker practice. And it's when I paid special attention to bumper stickers around town, and I would write them down in a little notebook in my car, ones that just kind of stuck out to me. Um, whether I thought they were funny, maybe it was maybe I found it offensive, like something that just kind of struck struck me, and I would notice my reactions to those bumper stickers too. Like, okay, wow, I felt this when I read that bumper sticker, and it became like a treasure hunt looking for bumper stickers. And I'll tell you that this town is really great to do bumper sticker practice, and because they're everywhere, I tried doing this practice um, when I during this year that I was doing it on the East Coast. There was like zero bumper stickers. <laughs> There was a million, 10 million cars, and like, I could count on one hand, I think, the amount of bumper stickers I saw on the East Coast. So we're really lucky. In that. <laughs> we were plentiful here in Missoula with bumper stickers. Um, but it was something I could do while driving that was a way to infuse this you know, creative mindfulness approach um, that helped me while I was driving. It made it fun. Um, it also made me sometimes drive a little too close to cars, though. <laughs> I was like, wait, what does that say? Oh, sorry, buddy. You know, getting a little too close. Um, so. <laughs> so it's good to find 
creative ways that we can uh, pick up mindfulness and uh, insert it into our daily life. And there's a lot of different ways that this can look like. Um, so these are just um, a few examples. There's a book that we've read here at Be Here Now a few years ago um, by Jan Bayes called How to Train a Wild Elephant. And it has very short chapters. I think it's 52, um, 52 different mindfulness tools that she goes through um, to give you different ideas. You know, um, One of them is to write with your left hand or your non-dominant hand, to brush your teeth with your non-dominant hand. You know, like little things like this, um, a way to sort of just reapproach mindfulness. So it's, um, I'd highly recommend that book if you're interested in more ideas um, to, to generate some creative, uh, creative ideas. Um, hmm. How am I doing on time? Okay, so I'm close to my end here. What I would like to do is um, I want to read just a short snippet from one of my favorite um, readings, which is an interview with Thich Nhat Hanh. And it's from what used to be called the Shambhala Sun magazine. It's now called Lion's Roar. And this is from um, January 2012. And there's an interview in this magazine. I've held on to it because I just love the interview with uh, one of the editors, editors of the magazine in Thich Nhat Hanh. And I'm just going to read a little snippet from here. <clears throat> so the question is, what would you say to someone who finds sitting meditation painful and difficult and they struggle to do it? And he responds, don't do it anymore, which I find astounding, right? Okay. And so she says, really? <laughs> and he says, he says this twice. He says, yes, yes. If you don't find it pleasant to sit, don't sit. You have to learn the correct spirit of sitting. If you make a lot of effort when you sit, you become tense, and that creates pain all over your body. Sitting should be pleasant. When you're sitting, you feel light, you feel fresh, you feel free. And if you don't feel that when you sit, then sitting has become a kind of hard labor. Sometimes if you don't have enough sleep or you have a cold or something, maybe sitting is not as pleasant as you'd wish. But if you're feeling normal, Experiencing the pleasure of sitting is always possible. The problem isn't to sit or not to sit, but how to sit. How to sit so that you can make the most of it. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. To me, that's a very profound teacher, teaching from a Zen master. Yeah. Um, I offer that as a closing um, to uh, inspire us uh, to find ways to re-envision our practice, to find ways to befriend ourselves in our practice so that we can sit, so that we can walk, so that we can breathe with the correct spirit of the practice. Yeah, um, Because it's possible to have this practice be a pleasant experience. So, dear friends, please uh, 
invest your time and energy in befriending, befriending yourself, befriending your practice, befriending your cushion, befriending the sangha, each other here, yeah. Um, befriending your practice. Uh, let that be um, the guide and aim of your practice to befriend. Mm -hmm.